Well, welcome to Let's Talk Live Q&A with Dr. Bobby Conway. You are checking out the Christianity Still Makes Sense YouTube channel, and you are joining us. So if you have a question that you would like to pose to Bobby, go ahead and leave that in the comments. Put a cue by it so that we know that that is a question specifically for Bobby and you're not just bantering with somebody else in the chat, which is totally fine. Or just leave us a comment and tell us where you're watching from. We would love to hear from you because, you know, we like to say hi and stuff. So, uh, Bobby, this is going to be fun and exciting. So we got some questions that came in ahead of the uh, the show. So we're going to start there to kind of let people, you know, populate the chat with some questions. But uh, I do want to mention before we get to questions, and it kind of ties into our first question here, you did some shorts on kind of the Andy Stanley con- controversy that's going on right now, or, you know, it seems like he's kind of moving towards a uh, LGBTQ affirming position. Again, we're not, we're not quite sure of that. Some people on some of the comments of your short that went out yesterday said that it's pretty clear that he's affirming, but uh, but he hasn't said that explicitly, so we're not going to go there yet. <laughs> so so check those out if you are watching this video, because our first question here uh, comes in from somebody named Bobcat PNW, and they are responding to one of our videos, and this question came in and asked, Bobby said that uh, he has no problem attending a homosexual ceremony or a homosexual marriage. Why are you attending a ceremony that celebrates Romans 1? So how would you respond to Mr. Bobcat here? Yeah, thanks, Tim. And uh, it's good to have those that are on. Uh, We're excited about the opportunity just to connect with you. I know that this time of day might not be ideal, so we're floating it in doing this. But yeah, I, I, I guess I would say I don't know where I've ever said I would have no problem attending uh, a homosexual ceremony. Um, I have had that question on pastor's perspective come up at different times. And I have said things like we're living in a time where we're having to think about questions that we haven't had to before as it relates to if you have a son or a daughter or a relative and they're going to get married in a same-sex relationship, uh, where are you going to stand on that? And this comes down to a conscious thing for a lot of people. Some people uh, will say, I would never go. Other people say, I'm not sure. Some people say, I, I would attend. And what I've said is, we're going to have to realize that uh, if people decide to go, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're affirming uh, the same-sex marriage. So uh, I can go back and forth from one uh, moment to the next when I'm thinking about this. But what I've said is you can have situations where obviously I wouldn't just go to a same-sex marriage just for anybody. I, well, I'm talking about like if my if I was in a situation, let's say, I don't have any grandchildren, but let's say I had a grandson, um, would, would, would I go or be open to going? And that's something that I would have to really think through. I, I think that you'd have to, number one, say, hey, I'm not, my, my presence doesn't mean I validate this. It's not my approval. Uh, but some people might want to just keep the relational doors open with a loved one. So this is challenging. Like I, I realized that some people are just real strong one way or the other. For me, I, I just kind of weigh this out and go, I could genuinely see like how myself, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And I also see 
how somebody could show up and say, I'm not going because I approve. I'm just trying to keep that relationship open. I'm letting that person know I love them, uh, but it doesn't mean I celebrate the wedding. It doesn't mean I'm blessing it. It just means that I'm there for this child of mine or this grandchild or this nephew. Uh, that's all I'm saying. I would say as well that think about this. I have a guy that had a daughter or that has a son that was going through a sex change. He couldn't go to the hospital uh, when uh, his son was having his male anatomy removed, but the mom did. And the mom flew up, she went to the hospital and she cared for her son that was trying to become a woman, right? Yeah. Now, you have a mom and a dad, one dad, the dad can't go, but the mom goes. They both love their, their son. But yeah. when you think about the son that is going through that, who's going to have the greater relational connection to the son? Hmm. Well, the mom went and the son knew that the mom totally disapproved with what he was doing, but he's still her son. And so she's just trying to love her son. I'm sympathetic to, to, to what some of this means. So what I try to encourage people is don't compromise on what the Bible has to say. Uh, but how you can go about supporting someone that might look different for different people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And, and, uh, and transparency, we're kind of dealing with this situation as we speak. So I have family members that are engaged to, to people of the same sex. And that is, you know, a conversation that's happening in our family as well. So I appreciate your insight there. So uh, let's go to, uh, to Billy's question here. And uh, Billy asked a really good question. He says, what is the greatest threat to followers of Jesus Christ in today's world? So how, how would you answer that question? Anytime I see a question like what's the greatest or the least, that's hard for me to answer because that would require doing some data and research and having, you know, some uh, some facts in front of me. Uh, so perhaps instead of saying what is the greatest threat, uh, what are some threats that we face today? Now, the question also said in today's world. Uh, so in today's world, the threats look different than in America. So uh, those would be two different questions. So I'm just complicating uh, my uh, answer, but let me now just assume that really what we're after is what are some threats that we faced in the Western world, in particular here in America? And uh, I would say that as a church, we need reformation. Uh, this entire LGBTQ plus movement uh, that we're experiencing, we are in the middle of a moral uh, revolution right now. And many people in the church have swallowed uh, the, the elixir that the culture has given to us. Uh, I think that you're seeing with church leaders today, uh, they're all too ready to compromise. We're seeing denominations compromise. So I think that the threat is ourselves. We don't know what the church is. We don't know what our theology is. We don't know where our convictions lie. And so what's happening is, is we're so busy trying to placate culture and appease culture that we have lost sight of the gospel uh, that Jesus has given to us. And so I think we've got to get back to the gospel. We need to figure out a way to bring about reformation. We don't need a 95 thesis. Uh, that would be pretty vexing, but we do need to figure out what it's going to mean 
to stay true to who we are. So when Luther uh, put up his 95 thesis at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517, he had a 95 thesis, right? This is what's wrong with the church. Well, there are some things that are desperately wrong with the church. And what we're doing is we're living just like Israel did in the time of the kings. We're trying to be like the other nations around us, right? We've got these high places that need to be torn down and we're erecting them. We're celebrating these high places in our culture. And listen, God wasn't a fan of pluralism uh, in the Old Testament, and he's not a fan of it today. We can coexist in love, but we can't be trying to figure out a way to compromise God's word in order to placate our audience. And this is a real problem in the church today. It's affecting the way that we view our morals in the church, the way that we equip our students. And so we've got a real problem on our hand in the church, and it's only been accelerated with just the all the gender pronouns that are out there. I mean, we are so obsessed with our genitals and our culture. It's unbelievable. Uh, I step back sometimes and I go, it's just complete obsession about our genitals. Uh, what we can do with our genitals, whether or not we can add genitals or we, we can get them cut off, uh, where we can put our genitals. Uh, it's complete genital obsession in our culture today. And, uh, and, and I see many people in the church just going, yeah, you know what? And listen, it's because in our culture, we've reduced our identity to our sexual preferences mm-hmm. and our identity is so much bigger than our sexual preferences. And we need to get it off just that. And so we have been influenced in great ways uh, by our culture, by the, the philosophy of postmodernity and deconstructionism, uh, by, um, you know, Rousseau uh, in his romanticism, where feelings trump, uh, you know, our thoughts. So we have got to really reform the church and we need some leaders to rise up and help us figure out what that's going to look like, like Martin uh, or like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in in the the Second World War. Yeah, we know that, uh, you know, he was challenging Adolf Hitler. He, he, you tried to have him assassinated. You had the state church and the confessors made up of like Karl Barth, uh, Niemöller, uh, Bonhoeffer. Uh, I don't think we know who the true church is right now. I think we wonder where our pastors stand. I think we wonder where the church stands and we need some reformation today. Yeah, amen to that. Uh, again, I, I will echo the point that you just said as kind of an exclamation point on that, uh, just to say that I think showing compassion, true compassion without compromise, um, is going to be one of those difficult things, is to say, how, how do we look like Jesus wants us to look in our everyday life? Uh, without compromising the truth. So excellent words there. So let's let's keep going here. We got several questions. We're taking questions. So if you have a question, go ahead and put it in the chat with a Q just to let us know that you want that question to be asked of Bobby. We got some questions that came in ahead of time that we're running through before we get to the questions in the chat. Uh, So this one is referring to um, Mark 9, verse 49. Some believers look to verse 49 of this passage as justification for purgatory. Could you address that verse and its meaning? Sure. So I'm turning here. Uh, Mark 9, 49 says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, And this particular passage, Tim, uh, it's in the context of dealing with leading, you know, 
new believers astray into sin. So that could happen, you know, if you're just giving false teaching to new believers or if you're leading them to astray into sin and Jesus laying out the warnings, you know, uh, you know, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck, you know, uh, than to go ahead and de- derail one of these new believers. And yeah. so then it goes on to talk about, you know, this salt verse. And when people look at that uh, in verse 49 for the one, uh, it, it says, uh, let's see here, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now, that is a heavily debated verse. Some would say, okay, this is purgatory. We're all going to be salted with fire. Like the preceding verse talks about where the worm doesn't die uh, in hell, where people will be cast. Uh, but the word hell is Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, which was there south of Jerusalem, and it was a garbage dump. And uh, there was trash that was always there that was being burnt in the Valley of Hinnom. And so the worm doesn't die. In other words, there's always worms feeding on the trash heap that is there. And so some would say that as uh, you know, believers, uh, it could refer to that they're going to be salted with trials in this life called fires, and mm-hmm. they'll be purified uh, through fire. Others would say the non-believers are going to end up in hell. Uh, others would say purgatory. I don't think it says anything there about purgatory. I, I don't think it's clear at all that it would teach purgatory. Hebrews 9.27 says that it was appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. Uh, nevertheless, I think the verse is cryptic. It's the only place we see this verse in the Gospels. And so it's very difficult to know exactly uh, what it's saying. Uh, I would uh, probably see it as saying something like this, that those that are leading people astray, uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to experience uh, some real purging. And that can be uh, the, you know, fiery uh, consequences that come their way. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the afterlife, but perhaps it does. So that's where I'm not as clear about it because I don't think I, there's as much context to allow me to be as clear as I'd like to be. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and again, just to remind our audience that that question specifically came from the Making Sense of Scripture series that you're doing, where right now you're going through the book of Mark, and those videos come out on Wednesday. Actually, it'll be happening right after this live stream. You can check out uh, Making Sense of Scripture with Bobby. So let, let's go to the, the, another question here um, that says, if your spouse refuses to repent of pornography, is that a legitimate reason for divorce? No, I I don't think it's a a legitimate reason for divorce, but it's a legitimate reason to anguish. And I hate this, that, uh, you know, that anybody is struggling in a relationship with somebody who's, you know, engaged in porn. Now, some would say, okay, but Jesus said, if you lust in your heart, right, then you've already committed adultery. And so then if uh, he says the only reason we can get, you know, a divorce is through adultery, and this person's lusting in their heart when they look at pornography, therefore adulteries happen. Well, I think if we're all being honest, there's, there's, there's not a single person alive that's married that has never had a lustful thought in their heart. So uh, if you're going to take Jesus' words literally in that way, then everybody could just go and get a divorce. Uh, 
pornography ups the ante from our thought life to you're you know now engaged in watching something and it creates a ton of problems i mean it literally damages the prefrontal cortex uh, of the brain, which is responsible for uh, the self-control uh, that we can exhibit in our life. It makes us more impulsive. It creates damage to that area. So I do think that um, it's it's destructive and, and, and there needs to be counseling. I would say that if somebody is engaged in pornography consistently, uh, it's likely it's just a matter of time before uh, it happens in real life. I mean, you're playing with fire there. Yeah, uh, but totally. in the, the gospel of Mark, when you come to chapter 10, uh, the next chapter, uh, I mean, it, it, it's pretty clear. I mean, Jesus is like, let no man separate what God has brought together. I mean, his his room for divorce, it, it, you know, we want to get much more open about it. And I think that we have to be uh, much uh, more careful. Like, are there situations like adultery, or if you're married to a non-believer that the Bible talks about, where yes, if people, you know, they have biblical rights to get a divorce. Yeah, I would see that as the case. Uh, is there anything else outside of those two reasons where somebody could get a divorce? I think that people have talked about the idea of a non-believer leaving somebody, and then they've, they've broadened that to into abandonment of all sorts. So I've been emotionally abandoned. I've been verbally abandoned. I've been sexually abandoned because he watches pornography. And I don't know that we should be getting broad like that because it is a slippery slope. But there are certain situations that I think that you can imagine uh, where if somebody was to come to you, Tim, and uh, you have a, a husband and a wife, but now the wife shows up with their husband, but the husband went through a sex change. And he just had his penis uh, severed from him, right? And he's wearing a dress, but he still wants to be married to his wife. But his wife feels like she can't divorce because she's in a church that said, well, he hasn't committed adultery and he hasn't uh, left you, so you can't leave him. Well, that's a situation that we really weren't equipped to think about. Yeah. Well, what would you say in a situation like that, right? Uh, this poor lady has to walk around looking like she's married to another woman. Uh, this this is a game changer, right? So I'm just giving yeah. a situation where sometimes it's not always that easy, but I'm just saying it should be a drastic reason, like adultery uh, mm -hmm. or non-believer leaving you or something like what we're talking about. Uh, if that ends up happening, uh, I would say counseling is very important. Uh, and hopefully uh, this person is not really acting like a believer if they're just sitting around looking at pornography and unwilling to give it up. Yeah. Uh, that's very problematic. Totally, totally. Um, I, ironically enough, uh, you mentioned that sort of situation. I had an old roommate whose parents uh, actually went through that exact situation. The uh, you know my my old roommate's father wanted to live as a woman and started that that process. And so it was, uh, again, I'm very disconnected from this family now, so I don't know, you know how it all came out, but that, that, that's a real situation. Let, let's mm. jump to uh, one of the questions that came in on the chat. So I'm going to go ahead and add this. So uh, Rona Jesse asked, hey, Bobby, here uh, in a small town of Bellbrook, Ohio. Yay for Ohio. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. You guys are right next door. I have a coworker whose grandson is thinking about becoming a Muslim. What can she do to dissuade him? Hmm. I would ask a couple questions. Number one, what is it that you're drawn to about uh, Islam? Uh, 
so there's obviously something that's taking place where, um, you know, this person uh, is thinking about becoming a Muslim. Why is that? Uh, and then listen to what uh, is said. And then I would say from that standpoint, you'll know where the conversation needs to go uh, because you can then show, hey, well, you know, why you would consider Jesus uh, and uh, why you believe Christianity is a much stronger alternative than Islam. Uh, and I would also have this person consider the resurrection of Jesus. Right? Muslims don't believe in uh, the, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. They believe in works based salvation. Uh, it, it, it is very much um, it, it's a, it's a it's a lot different than what we as Christians believe. And so I would say they're going to, you know, they're going to reject the Trinity. They're going to reject the fact that the Holy Spirit's the third person of the Godhead. Uh, even if you do good works all your life, you, you know, in the end, you're just got to hope that the, the scales of good works outdo the bad works. But there's no guarantee that Allah will still let you into heaven at that standpoint. So I would really focus on did Jesus rise from the dead and show some great evidences that we can give historically for the resurrection? I would focus on grace and how we can be motivated to live uh, for God out of his grace and kindness that he shows to us versus out of trying to do uh, good works, which just creates moral performance and self-righteousness in our own life. And I would also talk about the idea of forgiveness. Like, wouldn't you just like to know that that forgiveness is guaranteed? And then you can get into all kinds of things like, you know, reliability of the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, which the Muslims refer to as the angel. They're going to deny the reliability of the Gospels. Uh, so once you start to ask, what is the appeal? That will open up doors for you to know how to better have a conversation. No, that, that's excellent. Let, let's jump to another one that came in ahead of time, uh, dealing with Mark 9. Uh, I, I thought this was a really interesting question in Mark 9, 4. Uh, why was it Elijah and Moses that appeared at, uh, on the mountain where, you know, Jesus took, you know, Peter, John, and James up with him? Uh, why, why was it those two individuals? I mean, historically, what is said uh, as to why is you have... Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. So the law and the prophets, you know, representing the old covenant. And then you have Jesus there in the middle uh, as the one representing the new covenant that's about to be inaugurated. Uh, that sounds like a good explanation. Uh, and, you know, I'm satisfied with it. But sometimes that's all that is. We're just giving a, a speculative uh you know, observation on why that is exactly. But I think that that makes sense that Jesus is, you know, going to be the one who brings about the covenant of grace and Moses and Elijah represent uh, the, the law and the prophets of the old covenant. Fantastic. Let's go to another one that came in via the chat. This is Michelle. Michelle from California. Uh, you set yes. your alarm. You got here. Fantastic. <laughs> so Michelle asked, my roommate says that he doesn't believe in God because he believes in science. There's a you know whole explanation there. But it says, yet I'll catch him telling someone, I'll pray for you. So how would you suggest starting a conversation with this person? 
Well, in a situation where someone says, I don't believe in God, but I'll pray for you, I would want to kind of point out the contradiction. Uh, so I would say something like, uh, it's interesting. I, in our conversations together, I've heard you say that you don't believe in God on the one hand. And on the other hand, I hear you say that you'll pray for people. So my question is, uh, when you pray for people, who are you praying to for them? And then out of that response, uh, I would listen to what it is that they are doing when they're praying. Like, what do they mean when they say, I'll pray for you? Like, I'll talk to myself uh, on your behalf. And, and, and it's just stops with that. Or do they have, does this person have an idea of God? Uh, because when we think about prayer, prayer technically is defined as talking to God. Yeah. Well, then who are you talking to? Uh, I would also then want to show that. So that's how I deal with the prayer side of things. Like who are you praying to? It, because then obviously that's kind of undercut what you're saying about, you know, God and science being at odds. But then I would say God and science aren't at odds. Uh, right. And I would say we, we shouldn't believe that, that that's something that's passed around. But that's a lie. Many of the great scientists uh, today, I mean, many Nobel laureates are, are, are great scientists, uh, even today. Uh, and, and, and in the past, I mean, uh, you can think about um, when, when, you, when, you, when you think about like Kepler. I mean, my goodness. Uh, this isn't somebody who didn't believe in God. Um, so we can consider a different scientists of the past. You can think about Galileo. Um, and when you're thinking about these scientists, uh, God and science, they were still able to produce great science. Uh, why is that? If God created the world and we use our mind to discover the world that we're created in, well, he's created the laws that come along with the world that we live in for us to discover and uh, theorize about. In fact, take Genesis 1.1, for example. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, I mean, it's been said before that the five uh, things needed for our existence to even take place is time, force, action, space, and material. Well, you have all five of those features in the first verse. In the beginning, time, God, uh, force, created, action, the heavens, space, and the earth, material. So even from the very first verse, we can see it's not anti-science. No, that's 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 excellent. We we got lots of questions that are coming. This is fantastic. I love this. Um, I I will also add to that question, particularly when it comes to the science. There is a website called uh, History for Atheists. Tim O'Neill is the atheist that runs that, and he has uh, done a lot of work trying to debunk the myth that uh, you know Christians are kind of anti-science or th that they you know, are disconnected. The Christian religion is disconnected from science. So let's keep going. Yeah, We've got a quick one. Isaac here. Newton. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Philip uh, says he asked uh, credo baptism or pedo baptism. You might need to say what those two things are quickly before you, you know, give your thoughts on that. Well, uh, pedo baptism is referring to baby baptism. Uh, I've never heard it put as, uh, you know, this idea of credo baptism, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming confessional baptism, confession, uh, con confessional baptism. In other words, 
you're baptized after you've made a confession of faith in Jesus. And so that's kind of our options here. Uh, I don't see anywhere in the Bible uh, to make justification for um, pedo-baptism, for baby baptism. Dedication, sure. Uh, but the only place, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. There's one chapter where you see a baby in water in the same chapter, and that's when Moses is going down the Nile River, mm. and it wasn't to be baptized. Uh, baptism follows belief. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. That was the process. Now, there are those that want to go ahead and make a connection between the Old Testament uh, covenant of circumcision with the, the New Testament, uh, with the new covenant of baptism and make a connection. But number one, females weren't circumcised, right? So it doesn't directly correspond right off the bat. Uh, some would want to say, well, you have these household passages, like where Cornelius and his household were saved. Uh, okay, uh, but that's still an assumption uh, that in the house that we're, we can assume for sure that there were babies in the household, because it's not saying that there were. Uh, so I don't think we should baptize our babies. I think it's great for a, a baby dedication, but technically that would be more parental dedication. You're, you're dedicating the parents, right? To like, it's more about, Hey, mom and dad are dedicating themselves to raise their child, uh, in the ways of the Lord, right. With the hope that their child someday will place their faith in Jesus. Uh, nevertheless, this is a secondary issue. Like if somebody believes in pedo baptism, uh, and, I myself who do not, that doesn't mean we're not brothers and sisters in Christ. It right. just means that we disagree on this issue. However, I think that the argument is much stronger uh, in, in my situation because I just, they're, they're, again, you can't even point out a single verse uh, where this is commanded and baptism always follows belief. And so it's built on a, on, on a connection between circumcision of the old and oh, baptism in, in, in the new kind of reflects it. But then you, you have a problem because you don't have females that are circumcised. And then it's also, you know, built off of this assumption that there's babies in these households. Uh, and even if there were babies in the household and it says and they were they were and they and their household, uh, you know, believed and were baptized. It doesn't mean if there were babies in there that they were baptized. It could just mean that the adults that were in the household believed and they were baptized. Yeah. Uh, so I do think there's just a lot of assumptions that I'm not willing to make there. No, that, that's good. Uh, we got another question. You have to you have to think back to your Revelation preaching days back in uh, you know late 2022 or mid 2022. There, uh, this is Darren. Darren's a longtime watcher and commenter Darren, of yes. the What's the up, channel. Bro? So um, he asked, should a senior pastor be disqualified if they announce to their congregation the great end of the age of tribulation has started when it hasn't? Should there be disciplinary actions or accountability that goes with that? I would I would have further questions, for example, um, when somebody's saying the great end of the tribulation has started, I, I would want to know uh, what exactly are they referring to? Are they just saying that we're living, uh, you know, in trying times 
and this is where we are? Or are they saying that the seven-year tribulation has now officially begun? Uh, I would say I think we'd have a hard time nailing that down. Um, there are different viewpoints uh, as it relates, obviously, to the tribulation. You can have pre-trib people, mid-trib people, post-trib people, pre-wrath people. So like right uh, you know, they're, they're, they're hanging out, but then right before the worst of the tribulation comes, uh, they'll be pulled out. You have others don't even believe in a future tribulation. Um, uh, amillennialists uh, that uh, would believe, uh, you know, that Jesus uh, it, it, in, in those statements, like in all of it discourse, those were already fulfilled when Rome sacked Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, and things uh of that nature, uh, they'll, they'll bring up those types of arguments and to say we shouldn't be looking for um, a rapture in that way. So th there's there's those that believe that there's not going to be a millennium, that there's going to be a second coming and then we'll go directly into heaven. So I think that, again, these are secondary issues uh, that we need to be gracious with one another on. Uh, you might wonder where I stand. All the schools that I have been trained at were pre-trib, uh, pre-mill schools. Uh, I do not see myself as a pre-trib person, but I uh, would see myself uh, as a millennialist. Um, I, I probably lean more toward a post-trib uh, kind of a second coming rapture time, but I, 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 I'm open to how all this is going to shake out. Uh, in the end, uh, it, it is an area that we've got to be gracious with each other about as believers. Uh, I would say, I mean, the times we're living in are challenging, but when people say things like, oh, the tribulation has kicked in, it's often uh, stated in a myopic way because we see the suffering church here in the West uh, and we think that, you know, everything's determined on God's agenda by what's happening in America, but that's not the way we should look at it. The church is uh, suffering in the West, but it's exploding in parts of Africa right. and in China and in certain parts of Latin America. So if we're going to be more global in the way that we think um, that will help us to not try to come up with these end time statements based on a myopic vision of what's happening in front of us in our Western world. Yeah. Uh, again, everything you said was great. I'll, I'll just tack on there. Again, if this is a position that the church traditionally, like in their bylaws or in their, you know, the rest of the church leadership doesn't necessarily hold, then that would, again, I would, I don't know, Bobby went away and I would Matthew 18, that sucker, and pull that person aside and kind of try to see where they're at. Um, if this is just something that, you know, kind of the, the church has been teaching for a while and you're thinking, well, I disagree, then, you know, maybe this isn't the congregation for you, Darren, and, and that would be something that you'd have to address. So, uh, yeah, let, let, we, we can go to an, e we'll go to an easy one here. Uh, Darlene Johnson asked churches that say that, uh, we shouldn't go to movies or dance or, uh, to go to, to go to, or that women should wear dresses to church. Is that legalistic? Well, hello, Darlene. And, uh, thank you for, uh, the email that, uh, I received from you. Uh, I hope that you received mine back. Um, and thankful for the fact that our ministry has been an encouragement to you. Well, I would say, um, is it okay for Christians to go to movies, uh, you know, to dance? Well, it, it's not okay for me to dance. I hate dancing, but my wife loves it, right? 
so it's a it's a, it's a act of great sacrifice on my behalf to dance. Uh, but if my wife and I, I, I can remember, man, we were on a cruise uh, together many, many years ago. My parents took my family on a cruise and there was this dance club called the White Heat. And my wife looked at me like, you're going to give me a dance before this cruise is up. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is this is this isn't going to be good. I mean, I started sweating, palpitating. I'm going, maybe I should just jump overboard right now, get this over with. Like my wife loves dancing. I loathe dancing. Well, finally, on the last night, we made our way into the white heat. And I'm uncomfortable even with the term white heat. Uh, but we went in there and my wife got out on the dance floor and she's just moving. And she, she just starts like kind of saying, come on out here, honey. And I thought, Oh, this is humiliating. And I, I just kind of made my way out to the dance floor and she's just dancing around me. Like my wife dances in the house by herself. She just loves to move. Like she hears music and she starts to dance and she says, doesn't this just make you want to move? And I say, no, not at all. It does not make me want to move. So we go out on that dance floor and I think, well, maybe I ought to bust a move right now. So I just kind of throw an arm out. Right. And then I lift my head up and there's television screens in the white heat and everywhere you look, there I am up on the screen. And this was just utterly humiliating. So yes, uh, I don't think it's, you know, I think it's all in, you know, what kind of dancing are we talking about here, right? Like, what kind of movies are we talking about here? I mean, th there is a place to leverage discernment. And so I do think that that's important. When it comes to should women wear dresses to church? Uh, well, I would never want to go on record and, and say that. I just think men and women alike, the Bible talks about modesty. And so that's what we should uh, consider. And modesty might look different uh, in in, in various cultures. So what does modesty look like in our culture? Uh, and how do we uh, try to, you know, model that? Uh, now, when I say modesty in our culture, it's not that we should look to our culture, so to speak, for that. Uh, because, uh, you know, you could have a culture that knows nothing of modesty. But what I am saying is in a Middle Eastern culture where everybody, for example, in Saudi Arabia, is going to be warring kind of you know, long garbs and stuff like that. Well, it's going to look different there than it would here in our American context. So I would say we just want to use discernment about this stuff. When it comes to movies, man, this is a tough one for me. I love watching movies. Um, I love I love stories. I love plot. And you know what can really mess me up is sights and sounds, right? Like you can get pulled into a, a movie that you shouldn't be watching because maybe the beautiful scenery or the sounds or, you know, the CGI. Uh, so you have to realize that sights and sound can dull our ability to discern. So maybe go to IMBD beforehand and figure out kind of what's there. And it looks different for different people. Some like I can watch certain action movies, certain thrillers that uh, my wife, uh, it would keep her up. Um, but my wife, she can watch certain programs uh, you know, that would, would, wouldn't be healthy for me to watch either. So I don't think we should apply what works for us and doesn't work for us and say, everybody needs to live our way. That's when we get legalistic.
Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, well, well, maybe let's do one or two more uh, great questions that have come in. We're going to be doing these on a regular basis, probably monthly. Uh, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, the, the time may shift. So just kind of stay tuned to our channel if you haven't already subscribed. Uh, let's go ahead. Daryl um, Anderson, it looks like he is a skeptic. Uh, he says, my greatest faith issue is hell. What are your thoughts on eternal torment, annihilationism, universal salvation, etc.? He adds that uh, he does follow Chris Dates' Rethinking Hell on YouTube, so he's got a little bit of a background yeah. there. So uh, kind of give us your two-minute view on the afterlife for those that don't believe. Yeah, this might be a good question to, to wrap up on, Tim. I would say um, this, uh, Daryl, was... A, a deep burden for me too. Um, I had to wrestle through this big time. Uh, this idea of eternal separation from God in a place of torment haunted me, and it still does. Uh, I, I, it's it's just very difficult uh, for me to to digest at times, as it should be. I don't yeah. think this should be something that anybody. Uh, would be like, hey, this is just no problem for me. I mean, uh, that would feel a bit callous, right? Uh, a little bit detached from reality to, for, because because I'm a human and I know there's humans that don't believe in Jesus. That really hurts to, to play this out, right? Uh, and I really felt it in world travels uh, when I was traveling the world and in particular being in like the 1040 window and thinking about people in that region. It just wrecked me. Um, and so when I went through my long season of doubt, this was definitely one of them. I had Chris Dates on uh, the One Minute Apologist, and I had Frank Turek on, and I let them both kind of share each side. Uh, but where I would stand today is, um, while it sounds attractive to me, uh, the idea of annihilationism, uh, I, I, I haven't been able to arrive there uh, when I look at the Bible. Um, if, uh, now, I feel like I'm very sympathetic to how any of these views b besides, you know, eternal conscious torment could look attractive, right? Like universalism, everybody, you know, there, no one's going to end up in hell. Um, uh, even a purgatory where people get this hope to get out of there. But there's, I, but I don't believe in purgatory, right? Because I don't think somebody goes and they pay for part of their sins. I don't believe in universalism because... I don't think everybody's ultimately going to end up in heaven. Uh, annihilationism, uh, I can struggle with because when I think about the scriptures, it talks about how those on his left and those on his right, you know, you know, in Matthew 25, you know, you've got some going into, you know, eternal hell and others going into eternal heaven, so to speak. And the same uh, Greek word, uh, th that is used for eternal uh, uh, refers to both the fate of believers and non-believers. And so that's a tough one for me. Um, I, I would say that what uh, I, I don't believe that the flames are literal. Uh, like I don't think people are sitting in an oven, so to speak. I believe that uh, hell is eternal separation from God. Uh, and uh, it's a rejection of God and everybody's going to be, uh, you know, accountable for the knowledge that they've been given and nobody's going to be separated from God without excuse and that God is good. 
uh, and he's not willing that any should perish and that he's just. And so I just try to remember those principles that God is just, God is good. He's not willing that any should perish, that no one will be without excuse, uh, that people will be rightly held accountable. Uh, I, that, that, that helps me. And then as far as the eternal peace, it helps me to realize that, you know, everybody's punishment's not going to be the same. Mm. Call it a shallow end and a deep end. Like Hitler's punishment is not going to be the same as, you know, the 25-year-old Muslim that heard the gospel and rejects Christ. Um, William Lane Craig talks about the idea of, it. you know, people who raise the objection, it, the punishment doesn't fit the crime why eternal separation for a temporal life and mm. craig says the reason that hell goes on forever is because the sinning goes on forever and that does make sense to me so for example even non-believers right now uh, they are privy to god's general grace working through their life because god's moral law has been written on their heart though they don't give him glory for that well in hell part of being separated from god is I don't think God's general grace is working in that person's life. So hell then would be, you know, imagine never being able to be cured of depression and an anxiety disorder, you know, it just be living that way forever. And it's horrific. Yeah. Uh, and I hate it. I, uh, but that's how I see uh, the, 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 the scriptures unfold. Now, interestingly enough, when I did have Chris on, um, I've told him for a long time, I've never uh, got a chance to really do a deep dive into his material, reading his book outside of interviewing him. And someday I would like to do that. I just haven't had the time set aside for that. But I think Chris is a, is a great guy. Uh, you know, here, here's a guy who is a Calvinist uh, and an annihilationist, right? And a young earth Chris, creationist. Yeah. And a young earth creationist. Yeah, he's an anomaly, right? Yeah. But he's a super, super... Uh, passionate guy for for christ uh you know and he's got a lot of friends that he builds that don't see eye to eye with him on things but he'll tell you i'm not trying to to build a case because i can't stomach the idea of eternal hell he says i'm truly trying to look at what the bible says and i think it best teaches it so uh someday i'll get some time to read that and people can go ahead and look at his work on that for now but where i am in the journey right now is what i've just explained and I, it just requires a great amount of trust uh, uh, and not only that though my wife sometimes will say just the idea of an eternal heaven uh, can be exhausting to her head and yeah. i never really understood that you know like i'm thinking ah that sounds fine to me like the party you never want to leave she's like i know but it just goes on and on and on and on so I would say there are people that even get exhausted at the thought of how will we live forever, even in heaven? Yeah. Uh, well, she's thinking about things through her earthly experience and experience that certainly wears all of us out. But I just want to say thank you to everybody for your questions. Tim and I want to do this uh, more often with you guys. I've changed the name of my channel, One Minute Apologist to Christianity Still Makes Sense. Um, part of it is, uh, because I went through such a horrific season of doubt, came out of it, wrote doubting toward faith. And it's not that everything about Christianity still makes sense to me. I mean, there's questions that I still live with. It's just Christianity makes greater sense to me than the other worldview options that are out there. I just finished a book a few months ago called 
Christianity Still Makes Sense. It'll be published with Tyndale uh, next April. So we got over a year. The, it's, it's been backed up, the publishing process. But we really, Tim and I really want to build a relationship with you as our audience uh, and do more of these. I, I feel like there's so many things that I've learned as an apologist. Back when we started One Minute Apologist, I had no idea what we were even doing. And so then I went into that hard season of doubt, had a relapse, went through a tough season and got out of the algorithm altogether. And so, you know, been four years uh, clean, uh, back at it. Tim and I are pastoring a church together. Things are going great. And we really just want to help encourage you guys and to be a resource to you and to have time to build a relationship with our audience. So I do hope that you'll let people know about our channel. Uh, jump on with questions that you have. Uh, be sure to check out Pastor's Perspective. It's a call-in show that I do with my teammate, Brian Broderson, uh, that you can listen to as well. But anyway, just wanted to say thank you a ton for taking time out of your day uh, to listen to Tim and I have a conversation with you. Amen to that. Well, thank you, as Bobby said, for joining us. If you have a question that we didn't get to, I know there was a few that we didn't get to, you can go ahead and leave them in the comments. We'll try to kick off our next Let's Talk Live Q&A with some of those questions. Uh, so uh, until we do the next one, just go ahead and leave some questions down there in the comments, and we will use those to launch the next one. Uh, stay tuned to the channel. As Bobby said, like this channel, uh, you know, like this video, subscribe, share it with your network. It's a free way to support this channel, and we love you. Specifically, we love those doubters, those people that are asking questions. Uh, if you uh, want to watch this video right here, you can go ahead and click on that. If you want to subscribe, you can click over here on this side, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.